right? We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. That. We don't got time for that. Alright? Let's go. Crank it. Crank it, Glenn Cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320-KLWN. Hey, what's happening? Welcome in to another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson. No Adam Dravetta today on the show while I will be flying solo. Josh Briscoe joins the show in about 35 minutes from right now talk some Chiefs football with Josh and who knows maybe we'll have some uh, Odell Beckham Jr. news by the time we talk to Josh in about 35 minutes from right now. KU victorious last night in the Champions Classic in the season opener against Michigan State and they just kind of took care of business. I mean early on in the game is a little back and forth uh, very early on in the game and then KU just kind of held them at arm's length really the last, I don't know, 10, 12 minutes, 15 minutes of, of the game. It was a really impressive outing against a team that I don't know how good Michigan State's going to end up being. Certainly, they were a team that made the first four last year and um, barely even made the tournament to begin with, and then they lost their very best players. You can make an argument that maybe they're not that good of a team, but I kind of figure that Tom Izzo is going to end up figuring it out. The Michigan State will end up being a top 25 team. You know why? Because pretty much every year except last year, they are a top 25 team, and that win is going to look even better for KU down the road. Now, I talked all yesterday about the fact that we've seen so many times where KU in the Champions Classic has had a result that, I don't know, maybe wasn't necessarily truly indicative of how that season would go. And you think back to the Duke game, you have 30 turnovers, and then you only lose two games the rest of the season after that. You think about uh, the game against Michigan State last time you played him in the Champions Classic, where Quentin Grimes goes off and you think, this guy's going to be a bona fide superstar. That didn't end up happening. Or the time where you lose to Michigan State and you give up the big comeback and you think, oh man, this team's maybe not going to end up that good. And Well, turns out that team ended up being pretty darn good. They ended up getting, I believe, the number one overall seed in the tournament, making it to the Elite Eight. So from that standpoint, I don't want to overreact to how well Kansas played in that game, but certainly you'd rather have that than the alternative. And there at least are a couple takeaways I think you can come out of this game that do make you feel good about maybe some long-term stuff. Ochai looked fantastic last night. And again, going back to how much does Game 1 and the Champions Classic, how much can it deceive, how much does it matter for the rest of the games, Of course, this does not guarantee that Ochai is going to be an All-American or superstar or do that each and every night because we've seen in the past, like Ochai has had big scoring efforts before and he's had had games where, or has had games where he shot the the lights out of the basketball and he just comes up with a a 20, 22, 25-point game and there's no guarantee it's not just that. But here is why I think it's different. Here is why I think it's different than maybe some of those times in the past where It was just Ochai's night. He just had a strong shooting night. The handle looked a lot better 
for Ochag Pashi. And, and there were some people who mentioned this as well. Um, I know some people in, in scouting uh, for the NBA draft. I saw that in a bunch of different write-ups talking about the Champions Classic and Ochai. I know Jesse Newell noted this. I, I think it was pretty clear to see. The handle looked a lot tighter for Ochai, and it was more... I think usable because the thing with Ochai, he is such an athletic player. He's a six five wing, runs fast, jumps super high, can can really dunk the basketball. But it's been a question of how functional is that athleticism at times. Sometimes it just felt like well, the athleticism was more so in terms of him being a good defender. He wasn't putting up crazy rebound numbers, though he'd have some good rebounding games. And then offensively, you weren't able to, to functionally use that athleticism because he was more of a spot-up shooter, either because of the role he was asked to play in the offense or because maybe the handle wasn't there, where you can't drive to the paint to use that athleticism to attack the rim because of the fact that you have to be able to dribble the ball to get there. And the handle looked a lot better for Ochai, so that is a positive sign to me thinking, you know, 29 points a game isn't sustainable, but that you can continue to see that level of Ochai. And that level of Ochai, what we're defining here, is a superstar. That level of Ochai, what we're defining here, is a guy that would look like the Big 12 player of the year. That level of Ochai is an All-American level player. And those are all questions we've had this offseason. First of all, like, who would be the top candidate for KU? Second of all, how much does it matter? Is that a a requirement for if KU wants to be a national title winner, a true contender, Final Four team, that one of those guys has to emerge as a true first or second team All-American candidate? And we saw that from Ochai. Now, beyond the handle, the aggressiveness was also awesome to see. Um, Getting to the free throw line was something they mentioned throughout the broadcast. He went 8 of 8 on free throws. It's not just that he made the free throws. It's that he got to the line 8 times. I believe his previous high in free throws was set last year in the opener against Gonzaga. He had six or seven. He goes right off the bat and has eight against Michigan State. And again, that goes in line a little with the handle. If you can handle the ball better, you can attack the rim better because you're you're dribbling in traffic, and boom, you get to the free throw line. And for a guy that is that athletic, that can soar above the rim, if he can get to the rim and get fouled, that only adds so much to his game because we already know he is a knockdown shooter. Yes, it's... Uh, at times has been a little inconsistent, but that's just kind of shooting in general. It just is an inconsistent nature. If you're able to go be aggressive and get to the free throw line, now even when you're having down shooting games, you're still going to impact the game offensively, and that is another reason why I think what we saw from Ochai last night is different than some of the games in the past where he did have a nice scoring outburst, but you just chalk it up to strong shooting game. And then the other thing, and maybe this goes back in line with the aggressiveness, I'll maybe count this up to, I don't know, senior confidence or or just growing in age and and getting more confidence in yourself, your role of the team. He started two of six from the field in that game. I think he also started three of eight. He finished seven of 11 or six of nine, depending on which of those two you would take. I think we saw a lot when Ochai was a young player as a freshman and as a sophomore. We didn't see it as much last year. Last year, he still kind of tried to work through bad shooting starts. But there weren't always necessarily great successes when he did so last year. That was different this year. There was no lack of confidence when he started 2 of 6. In fact, when he started 2 of 6, like every shot that he made that didn't go in, it felt like it was going in. He looked ultra confident taking those shots. And that, I think, is another growth in his game. 
I don't think he's worried as much about, you know, starting maybe poorly to where if you miss your first couple shots, you just wonder where's your head going to be the rest of the game. You saw the opposite of that last night from Ochai, starting two of six, finishing seven of 11. And that, again, is another reason why I think it's different. And it makes sense, too. If you just think about the process here, you're talking about, like, I think so easily in the college game we get wrapped up sometimes when nowadays you see guys go pro so often after their first year to where we're almost, like, expecting you. We almost have these high expectations that you're just a finished product, like, after year two or something like that. Even, you know, after your junior year, it's almost like, well, we know what they are. We've seen them for three years. Teenagers still get a lot better at basketball. I mean, you're still leaps and bounds. A lot of times you see that big growth from junior to senior year. And every player has their own path. Every player has their own jump between year to year. With Wayne Selden, we saw it sophomore to junior year. With Frank Mason, we saw it junior to senior year. Uh, With Devontae Graham, we saw it freshman to sophomore year. You see these jumps from all these different players. And with Ochai, he has slowly progressed his game but we haven't seen that like gargantuan jump. He went from being a guy who pulled his red shirt in his freshman year to being a role player to then being a, a starting role player on a really good team as a sophomore to then as a junior, increasing that to being one of the primary options on the team. But it's not like it went from being, you know, a third team all Big 12 player to all of a sudden an All American. This feels like the jump where that could be happening. And you think about the NBA draft process where he goes off and you get a strong idea of what you need to improve on. And you understand the urgency of, hey, I only have one more year in college. Or I guess Ochai could be two more years because of the COVID year. But realistically, Ochai last night, he said, I was really close to going. So in your mind, you're going, if I'm coming back, I am coming back only for one more year. And then I'm gone. There's a sense of urgency that you cannot replicate when in the back of your mind, there still is a thought of, well, you know, if, if it doesn't work, like I, I can still go or come back for another year. And for Ochai, I think after that NBA draft process, you really do get in the back of your mind and you get the right idea of what you need to work on. And we heard stories about him bringing that back and, and leading kind of, you know, off-season workouts and so forth. And I think we saw kind of the result of all that brimming for Ochai on Tuesday night's game. He goes off for 29 points. Absolutely incredible performance from Ochai Baji. Clearly looked like the best player on the court for KU. Now, for Remy Martin, he was also really good in the game. Took over when he needed to in the second half. Ended up with 15 points. All were in the second half. I don't know whether the Ochai stuff was a bigger takeaway or if it was Remy Martin's patience. I think might be a good way of describing it. That was a bigger takeaway. When I say patience, Remy Martin didn't take a single shot in the first half. Had all 15 of his points in the second half. He was trying to get others involved. He was running the offense. Quote after the game, I came here to win. I didn't come here to score points to be the face of the team. That's what you're hoping he says. That's what you're hoping he believes. You're hoping for that buy-in all season long. If you get that buy-in, that's a great sign. We know Remy Martin can be a good scorer. We know Remy Martin can hit tough shots. Can you run the offense? Can you do the little things? Can you play tight defense? 
I mean, Tyson Walker, who transferred into Michigan State from Northeastern, he was a guy that we talked about this offseason. Like, he'd be a great fit for KU. He was the conference player of the year or, or defensive player of the year at, at Northeastern. He was a really good offensive player, average 18 a game. It wasn't just Remy Martin. There were other guys as well, but, you know, they kind of locked him down. He didn't really have an impact at all in that game. I think you at least attribute maybe some of that to Remy Martin. And so just to have that patience, to have the understanding of what you're trying to do, I think that was exactly what Bill Self wanted to see last night. Like, don't go out there and just try to hunt your shot all night. And then you get the second half, and, you know, there were certain times where Remy Martin said, okay, I see an opportunity here to score. It wasn't forced, and that's the most important thing. It was efficient. It was when you needed it from KU. It was when, hey, we need somebody to create off the dribble, and that's what we brought you in here for. And it was just patient. And if that continues all season long, and if Ochai continues all season long, there's no reason this team can't be one of the teams to beat for the national title. Because that would be maximum Remy Martin, and that would be maximum All-American level Ochai Baji. And the combination of both of those takeaways last night, that's pretty special. Depth was a storyline, too, and maybe we could have expected that. But those two things really stuck out, I think, above everything else for me in KU's win over Michigan State. All right, let's take a time out here. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. I do want to talk a little bit more about that depth and also the depth leading to some redshirt candidates, which was announced last night by Bill Self in the pregame leading up to the game on the radio. Josh Briscoe also joins the show in about 20 minutes. This is RCST on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN, depending on it. Would you like to get involved in sponsoring Rock Chalk Sports Talk or the best of RCST podcast? How about getting involved in some KU action or local high school sports? You can reach out to us, djohnson at gpmnow.com. That's djohnson at gpmnow.com. And we'll see what we can do to help out your business and get involved here in local sports. Josh Briscoe joins the show in 15 minutes. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. By the way, I don't know if you, anybody was listening to the uh, do the, like Fox News alerts at the top of the hour. They mentioned Arby's is making crinkle fry vodka. Get out of here, man. Okay, I, I, I don't want to lie. Like, there's a part of me that wants to try it. So I guess from that standpoint, congrats, you win Arby's. But, like, what are we doing here? What are we doing? All right. Uh, KU mentioned the biggest takeaways for me. Remy Martin, Ochag Baji coming up with big games for the Jayhawks. Beyond that, the depth for KU, I think, was the other big storyline of the night. And that's one that had been touted all season long, off season long. But who knew how much it was going to impact a game. It was kind of a wait and see to how deep they'd play. We heard Bill Self say, you know, they could play 10 guys deep, but it was kind of like, okay, I'll believe it when I see it. Because we've seen so many KU teams play seven or eight guys. And maybe we're a little jaded by the fact that we think of a rotation based on who's actually playing come March. And I'm sure come March again this year, it'll get whittled down to seven, eight, maybe nine guys. But at least for the beginning of this year, a lot of guys are going to play, and that was the case last night. And I would imagine, 
I don't know. It'll be interesting. Once Jalen Wilson comes back, like you could argue, okay, that's just another player into the rotation. So, so it should add numbers there, but also I would imagine Jalen Wilson's going to play a sizable role of minutes that it's going to maybe take away from a couple guys and their opportunity uh, to get minutes. But you absolutely saw the benefits of KU's depth come through, I think, really early in that game. Ochai and Remy really, I think, carried the second half for KU. Like, they were they were the finishers for you, and that's kind of what you want, and that's kind of what you need from what are supposed to be your star players, and you got that. The bench, I think, got you through the first half, and not only got you through the first half, they got you through the first half with, what were they up, seven at the halftime break? So Mitch Lightfoot comes in around the 16-minute mark, and he kind of helped settle things inside. Dave kind of started the game frantically, and it wasn't a good game overall for Dave on offense, but Dave actually did have like a strong rim protection game, and I think I think based on the matchup, first game of the season, I'm not overly concerned with the 4 of 11 or the two rebounds. Like, let's, let's wait and see. Certainly it's going to, you know, maybe get some alert notices out because we know how Dave started poorly last year before figuring things out and finishing things strong, and you kind of wanted to see him start this year strong, but not overly concerned, like tough matchup uh, against one of the best, you know, blocking centers in the country in Michigan State. But Mitch came in, and, and he kind of settled things down for you inside, got a couple buckets early, played solidly on both ends of the floor. Um, you had Jalen Coleman-Lands come in in the first half who had a nice assist on one of Mitch Lightfoot's buckets. Jalen Coleman, Coleman-Lands hit a three early. We didn't really know how much he was going to play in the game, but he got some good run in that first half. He did take a lot of shots, which on one hand, you know, you love to see he's a sharpshooting three guy off the bench. Like you want him to have all the confidence in the world. Um, overall, just one of five shooting. So you'd like to see more efficiency there, but hit a big three and, you know, he was active. He was, he was noticeable on the court. Zach Clements uh, came in, got two steals. Then he cans a three, hits a couple free throws. He had a nice um, assist find from Bobby Pettiford, but a nice little shovel assist and that got Clements on the board. Clements played four minutes, he had seven points. And you would have thought, because he played four minutes, all of them came in the first half with those seven points. You would have thought, oh, Zach Clements had seven points in four minutes. He probably, I mean, he probably increased his minute load in the second half for how much he played. He didn't play in the second half. That's just how deep this KU team was. But he had some nice momentum shifting plays in the first half, and I thought he looked good. And I continue to think that Mitch Lightfoot's going to be the backup big for the near term. I think come January or February, like Zach Clements, I would not be surprised if he has overtaken that role as the backup five behind uh, David McCormick, but saw some flashes in there for him. And I know uh, like Scott Chasen pointed this out, KU was heavily recruiting Matthew Hurt, ended up going to Duke. Um, And Matthew Hurt played for Bill Self on the U19 team, the same team that had like Quentin Grimes and all these guys for, for Team USA. And he ran some interesting offensive stuff for Matthew Hurt as this, like, stretch four, stretch five guy. And I think there's going to be some of that that he uses on Zach Clements, and I think that experience with Matthew Hurt is going to help Zach Clements, as as Scott Chasen pointed out. So I I think uh, that's really interesting to monitor, and I do expect a bigger role for him as the season goes on, just in the early going might not be there. Bobby Pettiford, who I mentioned, had that nice shovel assist to Zach Clements. Just really solid. Um, not sped up at all by the big stage, which is always what you want, wonder with young freshmen, especially young guards. Like, are you going to be sped up? Are you going to look like you are 
young. Like you're you're not in the moment. But honestly, he ended up playing more than Joe Yesifu. I thought he looked better than Joe Yesifu. And that's I think pretty notable. Um, I think that is going to be something where it is just kind of a night-to-night thing. Like, to me, Dewan Harris, Remy Martin, those are both guys who are going to get starters-level minutes at the guard positions. I think between Joe Yesifu and Bobby Pettiford, maybe one guy gets, you know, picked at the end of the year. And if you just had to pick after after the offseason, you would have said Joe Yesifu. But after game one, you would have said Bobby Pettiford. I, I think it'll end up being both, but maybe it is one guy who ends up emerging. Um, he was good. That and one he had. That was explosive. If Bobby Pettiford, if that dude sticks around KU for a couple of years, like he might end up being an All-American, you know, as a junior. He looked really impressive in limited time. Uh, KJ Adams was a guy I mentioned. I was one of the most excited players I was interested to see. I was interested in his role, what he could do for the team. I really like all the talk that was about him in the offseason. And um. I, I liked how he played against Emporia State because he made a bunch of plays where, you know, they didn't necessarily go down in the stat sheet, but just impressive stuff. He wait, they waited till four seconds to go in the first half to put him in because I think uh, I think Dave had two fouls at the time and Michigan State had the ball and you know you want to avoid picking up a, a cheap foul at the end of half. And KJ Adams comes in there and he gets a block to end the first half. And then the second half he ended up playing a handful of minutes. I think he ended up with four minutes in the game. Um, I think at one point he was playing at the five position as like a small ball five. So I, I'm interested to see his continued progression, but I, I like every time he goes out there, I just like him so enamored with like, okay, what are like the little things on the court that you're doing that aren't going to show up I- I- on the stat sheet necessarily. And with all that depth, all those guys that I just mentioned, you know, that didn't even account for you getting really anything from a guy like Joe Yesifu, who, I still believe in, and I think there still are going to be on nights for Joe Yesifu. I think what Joe Yesifu is more going to be is kind of that classic like sixth man role where there's going to be games he comes on the be- off the bench and just lights it up, right? And he's absolutely feeling it, and he's going to score 15, 20 points for you in a game. It's not going to be every game, but it'll be every now and then, and he might win a game for you coming off the bench. But then in the games where that doesn't happen, maybe that's a Bobby Pettiford night. But impressive that you did that with the bench despite, you know, maybe the guy that you thought would have had the biggest scoring punch off the bench not really doing that. And in total, KU played 11 guys last night. You had Clements and Adams um, only played four minutes each. So if you don't include those guys, because realistically that's not like an actual rotation share moving forward, that really is a nine-man rotation for KU last night with nine guys playing double-digit minutes. But knowing the impact that Clements had in his little spurt, knowing the impact Adams had in his little four-minute spurt, if you combined Clements and Adams into one eight-minute player, it basically was like KU played a 10-man rotation. Nine guys played double-digit minutes, and then your 10th guy was just basically a combination of Clements and Adams for eight minutes. It basically was a 10-man rotation, if you think about it, like Bill Self said. And so in the end, KU didn't have to sweat that one out. I still think you trust Tom Izzo is going to end up having a top 25 team, so that should age well. But more importantly, you weren't even stressed by them. And it's one game. The openers haven't been indicative of too much in general, let alone for KU. But that was a very nice step to have, and you definitely showed the strength and importance of having depth and of having a bunch of good athletes and, and speed and, and three-point shooting to come off the bench like KU did. Now, one guy who 
was supposed to be a big three-point shooter off the bench. Cam Martin is going to be redshirting this year. This was announced during pregame with Bill Self on uh, the radio show before the game. Announced the Kyle Cuff, which that one kind of expected. He was He's supposed to be a senior in high school right now, so you basically just get him in the program, redshirt him. You get a year of experience in the program for Kyle Cuff. He's a heck of an athlete. We'll see what he ends up doing in his career, but that one made a lot of sense. Dylan Wilhite is a preferred walk-on for the team. Um, again, makes a lot of sense for him. And then Cam Martin, I don't know. It it comes as a surprise if you start from the point of Cam Martin has committed to coming to KU. You know, Cam Martin has committed to transferring into KU because it's not very often you see a grad transfer senior red shirt, right? But once you start thinking about it in terms of this year, I think the idea originally was Cam Martin's going to come in. He's going to be your backup five. He's going to eat up all those backup five minutes. He's ready to go. He's going to you know, be a good three-point shooter. He's going to be a good spell player for, for Dave. I mean, there was even talk about, are they going to play two bigs together? That didn't last very long, but it was brought up. And then you get into the offseason. You know you're behind Dave, so that's already going to cut you off in terms of your minutes. Like if Dave gives you 20 to 25 minutes a game, the most you can play at the five is 15 to 20 minutes. But then Mitch Lightfoot, a super senior, has had a good offseason and knows what to do in the offense. And then, so you're behind him now on the depth chart, at least to start the year. Maybe you could beat him out over the course of the year, but definitely not to start. And then Zach Clements. By all accounts, it sounded like Zach Clements was ahead of Cam Martin in the rotation and, and in the depth chart in the off like at the end of the offseason. And if that happens for a guy who, you know, if he's out shooting you and he's a better athlete than you, he's younger than you, he's a top prospect, so you think higher potential, it's it, it just makes it tough. And so it's not that there's going to be a non-center log jam next year because you could still have Zach Clements and anybody else you bring in but it's definitely a little less cluttered than it would be this year, especially if David McCormick goes pro after this season, which I, I don't know what that'll be because I haven't seen him pop up on any mock drafts or anything, but also I I almost get the sense like that's the plan, that's the goal. So um, certainly it makes a lot of sense for Cam Martin, and I applaud him for doing that, and I think that could work out really well to KU's favor uh, for next season. This is Rock Truck Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Let's switch gears a little bit. We're going to switch over, talk some Chiefs football. I don't believe there's been any Odell Beckham news. Maybe something will pop up as we're talking to Josh on the other side. This is RCST on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. About 20 till 4, this is Rock Truck Sports Talk on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. Haven't seen any Odell Beckham Jr. news yet, but I mean... I don't know. I feel like it's going to happen at, at some point during this interview. That would just make things crazy. Josh Briscoe of Almost Entirely Sports, Arrowhead Report on SI Now, Times Ours on The Athletic joins us now on the show. Before we get into the the Odell stuff, uh, Josh, I, I think we need to address this. The last time that you came on this show was the Friday before the Bills game. Did we accidentally chief curse the Chiefs offense somehow? It's totally possible, right? I can't remember what I said. I don't remember what I said last night, you know, so I, I'm not <laughs> sure if I accidentally used some cursed phrase that put a hex on them. 
I'm not sure if I've just been too optimistic at various points, but uh, I'll say this, you know, it's always nice for people to have a scapegoat. You want to be able to put all of your, your disdain somewhere. And, um, you know, Dan Sorensen's that guy for the defense. If I need to be that guy for the Chiefs offense, I can take it. <laughs> okay, so for me, I feel like the biggest issue on the offense, I, I don't know, I almost feel like it's a theme of, of stubbornness, where it's stubbornness to not have maybe multiple drives of running it down their throat or stubbornness to not slice and dice with short routes down the field for a full game, whether that's Andy Reid, Eric Bieniemy, Patrick Mahomes. I don't, I don't know. It just seems to me that the Chiefs do something to adjust to how defenses are playing them for maybe one series. Like we saw the first series with the Packers. They run the ball down their throat, and then it just it feels like after that one series, I almost get the sense of like Andy Reid just like, okay, we did it one time. They're going to adjust back to normal now. We're fine now. Um, but it doesn't end up happening that way. And, and I know there's intricacies to that as well, like Mahomes' dropbacks goes into all this, then uh, number two wide receiver problem goes into all this, star players dropping passes. So I guess how would you kind of divvy out the blame pie here for, for what's gone on with the offense? I think the main thing is something you touched on there, which is that there are plenty of places that you can kind of point around. Um, I'll, I'll immediately give an early uh, early suggestion for the wonderful Seth Kaiser, he has a new piece up on his newsletter um, where, where he goes through and actually finds out that Patrick Mahomes played a lot better on Sunday than he had those last couple of weeks. And really, the, the Titans game was a disaster. The, the Giants game was underwhelming, but it wasn't terrible quarterbacking. And then you can read what Seth has to say about the Packers game if you'd like. But so obviously, like there have been times where Mahomes has not been good, particularly the Titans game, his worst game as a professional, in my opinion. You do have the issues of number three pass catchers, anyone not named Travis Kelsey or Tyreek Hill, having trouble getting open. And part of that is how defenses are playing those two guys, right? You just beat you. I, I honestly think we're like two weeks away from a defender taking their helmet off and just using it as a club to just beat Travis Kelsey while he's running some little six-yard route, and they won't even be penalized for it because you just have to beat Travis Kelsey that way. Um, they've got these halo coverages on Kelsey and on Tyree Kill that Andy Reid mentioned a week or two ago. Like, There's all of that, and then it means, hey, can Demarcus Robinson or Byron Pringle make a defense, uh, make a defense pay for just covering those other two guys the way they do? The answer there has been no. Um, I saw Andy Reid, I think, dropped out of, this, I think it was something like the top five uh, in play caller ranking as a, a PFF metric for the first time in years. Uh, they've been frustrating. Some of the play calling has been a little bit frustrating. You mentioned the, the running the ball aspect of it where you say, hey, if you've got these safeties 25 yards down the field and your linebackers are backpedaling at the snap, of course they should be running the football a little bit more often. Um, then you have running backs who, you know, on occasion take advantage of that. On occasion you've seen that not ultimately end up paying as, as many dividends as you'd like. So really, I just think you could point just about anywhere and say, hey, can you put a little bit of blame on this? And I think my answer for almost everyone would be yes. Like Creed Humphrey, no. Joe Tooney, no, except for his salary cap figure. That's not his fault, though. Trey Smith, no. Or the tackles, maybe a tiny bit. But like the offensive line's been pretty good. Everyone else think, has some amount of blame they can take. Uh, uh, Travis Kelsey dropped the first down after that pass that deep shot downfield to Nicole Hardman that everyone's been talking about for the last two days. Uh, if, if Travis Kelsey catches that pass, we're not talking about the deep shot to Hardman. I just, it, it really is deeply intertwined. Yeah, we're, we're talking with Josh Briscoe here on Rock Shock Sports Talk. I guess where does um, Odell Beckham being available 
play into all this in terms of, uh, I guess, uh, how much would he help as the number two receiver, and where have you taken your stand in the dirt among the Odell Beckham is a good or bad fit for the Chiefs' war? First of all, this is a little bit inside radio, but I figured it at least make you laugh that I love that my answer was so long there that you had to reset. Like, that's how long I talked for. Sorry. Uh, anytime I talk, just expect that Josh Briscoe here with us at Rock Talk Sports Talk because he just talked for seven uninterrupted minutes. Um, my, my stance on Odell Beckham is if I can do the simplest thing, and this isn't a perfect comparison, but go ahead and take the Sammy Watkins role. Take, go ahead and project that onto him. And then also remember, not just how Sammy Watkins looked when he was in this offense and what his stat lines were. So that's only part of the picture. This offense was clearly better when Sammy Watkins was on the field, even if he was not always the one reaping those rewards. Uh, and I just think that that is like beyond obvious at this point. So you, you, you can look back to that era of Sammy Watkins, and, and the Chiefs have been trying to add another weapon because I think they've known that they're a little bit deficient there, that third pass-catching option. Now, look. Uh, with, with last week being a, a, a stab in the right direction from, from Patrick Mahomes, you still should look at the quarterback. If you say, hey, you have two like future Hall of Famer-type weapons here, who do you need as your third pass catcher? I get that. I think there's something fair about that. But if you have an opportunity to add that third guy in there, the Chiefs were all after Juju Smith-Schuster this offseason. They drafted Cornell Powell. Uh, I thought they might try to be in on Josh Reynolds. He just got claimed by the Lions a little bit ago. Um, so I, the Chiefs are self-aware on some of that. They drafted Noah Gray. Like, I, I, you know, that's a different position, obviously, and, and was never going to like get Kelsey's workload year one or whatever. But they've they've been trying to find those guys, and then they obviously bring in Josh Gordon, and that's been kind of a disappointment, or at least underwhelming to this point. So I, I think you can look at where the Chiefs are at, and, and you can understand they know they need a third guy, or they would like to have one at the very least. And I think what he would be able to do as an outside receiver, I was reading something earlier where I was taking a look at how the Chiefs have been running trips on one side, then you have the one backside receiver, a little three-by-one. To have Beckham be that guy on the other side of the field instead of a McCole Hardman, instead of a Demarcus Robinson, I think is such a clear talent upgrade that to not be potentially excited about this move as a Chiefs fan is genuinely confusing to me. Now, we can talk about like how some weird facet of Chiefs Facebook is like very worried about the intangible stuff. We can cover that or not. That's I'll leave that up to you. Um, but I, I just think that it's, I mean, it, it almost makes too much sense, which is why I think that you've continued to hear their name be thrown around, uh, around Odell Beckham. And I, I frankly hope he ends up here. I think it makes this offense more interesting by a pretty significant margin. Clyde Edwards-Alaire could be back soon. Uh, have you noticed any mm-hmm. tangible difference in the Chiefs running backs to Clyde in his absence? I guess, uh, does this move the needle at all for the offense? It's interesting. So he was back at practice today. He's designated to return from IR, but he'll have a three-week window where he can practice before he gets activated. So I would probably not expect to see him on Sunday night. Um, it would make sense for him to be back for the Cowboys game the next week, but then after that as a bye week. So they could basically give him a month off from now and only have him miss two games, depending on where that knee is at. Um, it's interesting because I, I think that maybe the most electric stretch of running the ball this year for the Chiefs was five consecutive carries for Derek Gore, who you probably hadn't heard of unless you were up in training camp during the first two days of camp. I was up there one of those two days, I think. Um, I remember watching him. Like, oh, yes, Derek Gore guy. He looks pretty good. Probably never going to see him again because he's running back five or six here. But it was, you know, in, intriguing nonetheless. 
But so you get that stretch from him, it's fantastic. And this offensive line has been very good, specifically whenever they've run some more power stuff, some more inside stuff, not all these stretches to the outside. And frankly, this is uh, Clyde, Clyde would be the most talented of those four backs, being Clyde, Daryl Williams, uh, Gore, and, and Jarek McKinnon. And as someone who always talks about how little individual running backs often move the needle, I will still tell you, Clyde's the most talented of those guys. Um, probably has the best burst of those guys. Probably has the best wiggle of those guys. But he's not a fundamentally different type of running back, which makes me a little bit confused still as to how he was being used, partially last year and especially this year, where that offensive line has provided so many good lanes up the middle. If he gets used correctly, I, I think it could – it could be a, a, a step in the right direction. I don't think it ends up being a, an offense changer by any means. But you'd like to think that, that he'd be able to provide a little bit of an extra boost considering you know, how much more expensive he was to acquire than these other guys. And, and I think there could be a little bit of that. Um, but I think for the most part, the thing I'm most concerned about isn't even who's running the ball, but how the Chiefs are running it. And obviously the defense has been the big positive storyline, actually, the last couple of weeks. Yeah showing some nice flashes, um, and, and I guess we'll see how that fares against good quarterbacks. But have there been enough tangible changes in the lineup between Juan Thornhill getting more time than Daniel Sorensen or Willie Gay and, and Nick Bolton last week playing more than Ben Neiman, uh, along with adding Melvin Ingram and moving Chris Jones back to the inside? Is that enough tangibly to make you think that the defense playing better? You can actually like point to something to say, no, this isn't just random or about playing bad offenses? Yeah, I think that's a good question. Yeah, I would say yes, and also that there's another there's another reason that I would think that, which is just that it's really, really hard to be as bad as they were out of the gate. Like it, it is like historically speaking, to be that bad with a defense that at least has you know NFL caliber football players, they might have I don't know. Five, I'm pulling numbers out of nowhere, so please don't try to put names to this anybody. But they might have five above average starters. Maybe one or two of them are elite. Maybe you have a couple average, a couple below average. Maybe your depth isn't as great, whatever. But ultimately, like, it is an NFL defense that had not looked this bad in previous iterations. And while I do think that, that some of the steps backwards are legitimate, you know, Anthony Hitchens is getting older, um, but Frank Clark has gotten healthier. Like, I, I do think that there is absolutely something legitimate there. And look, you know, it's obviously they played Jordan Love yesterday, or last week. That. That is very different than playing Aaron Rodgers, but it's not the defense's fault that, that Aaron Rodgers wasn't vaccinated. You know, like that, the, the defense ultimately had a different assignment and they crushed it. Like, so maybe, maybe it was a, an A, a straight A, not an A plus because of Daniel Sorensen. Uh, but, but maybe they get an A on that assignment. Maybe it was an easier test. It was certainly an easier test than it would have been with Rodgers out there. But I still think that there's absolutely legitimate positive things to latch on to, like everything that you mentioned there in terms of the playing time, like Frank Clark being more productive, like Chris Jones being more on the inside, Ingram looked good uh, on Sunday. So, yeah, I, I absolutely think that to try to, to try to keep yourself from feeling anything optimistic about the defense would, would, be, would be unnecessary. Okay, we're talking with Josh Briscoe of Almost Entirely Long Sports, Arrowhead Report on SI now, on The Athletic. Are you ready to get into some good idea, bad idea? I got to... Handful yes. plus. All right. Uh, this, is, this is great because this also brings my average length of answer down significantly. <laughs> well, first up is kind of in line with something I mentioned earlier about I feel like the steam, uh, the the theme was, was stubbornness. And one of the things that mm -hmm. I didn't bring up with, with that theme was 
the stubbornness to continue to play certain guys like McCole Hardman yeah. into, you know, so many different roles. Um, ben Neiman getting still a lot of run and until last week was, you know, still getting more snaps than guys like Willie Gay. And then Daniel Sorensen still playing a good amount, although it has been a little less since Juan Thornhill has entered into the starting lineup. Uh, good idea, bad idea. Genetically combining Ben Neiman, Daniel Sorensen, and McCole Hardman. Bad idea, just from a moral perspective, <laughs> from from every from a scientific perspective. I don't think any of them would survive. Like I, they should probably play less, but I think that's a bit extreme. Bad idea. Okay, you're like Jeff Goldblum in, in Jurassic Park. Like, yes, yes. <laughs> don't do this. Like, you know what you're starting. I'm sitting here going. But think about it, Josh. We could have the brains of Daniel Sorensen that the coaches are always talking about. We could have the effort of Ben Neiman. We could have the speed of McCole Hardman. It's a Pro Bowl player. It's a bad idea. <laughs> okay. And then you get all six arms. In which case, I'd be really. I'd be, I mean, it's like football playing Cerberus, right? Like the three-headed dog that yeah, guards right. the underworld, the gates of the underworld. All right, you know what? I'm I'm not gonna say it's a good idea, but I'm gonna say I'd I'd circle back to see if that if that happened. You know, I'd, I'd check it out. Okay, it's growing on you. Um, giving yeah, Odell Beckham, if this is what it takes to bring him in with the team, a two-year deal. Oh, I, dude, I swear I was thinking about this earlier. Earlier today, I thought, well, I wonder if anybody to to break a tie would offer a second year. Um, oh God, people are gonna crush me for this. I think it would be a good idea. Obviously, the number would, would be a significant um, determining factor, but I would do it because part of my... Obviously, he is not currently on the team, and I think right now, it's just as good a chance he signs with the Saints or the Seahawks or the Packers or whoever. But, like, I was already thinking earlier today that, boy, I hope this, like, half-season Kansas City would go well so he would consider coming back for another year. So I, I kind of think it's a good idea. Okay. How about giving Jody Fortson a five-year extension? I know he's hurting everything, <laughs> but think about it. Last time the offense looked right, Jody Fortson. Yes. Absolutely a good idea. This this team has not been the same since they lost Jody Fortson. I'm willing to say that is the main reason at hand. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you saw this, but Arby's is having a curly fry <laughs> flavored vodka now. Good idea, bad idea. <laughs> I can tell you it's releasing in seven days, 19 hours, three no. minutes, and 55 seconds because I have the page open in a tab because if I don't get a bottle of it, wow. I'm going to be furious. It's a great idea. I literally have it open in a Chrome tab right now. Okay, so building off that, taking a yeah. shot of that vodka every time someone compares Odell Beckham going to the oh. Chiefs as Terrell Owens with Andy Reid with the Eagles. <laughs> I mean, it's a good idea just because you're going to have some delicious curly, curly fry-flavored vodka in your body. I mean, why, why, what would be bad about that? Absolutely. All right, last one I got for you. Going to Las Vegas with $50 in your pocket, hoping to make enough at the casino to afford tickets to the game. I mean, look, if you're going to be there anyway, that's kind of that feels like a fun sort of high-risk, uh, potentially high-reward uh, format. I don't think I generally want to endorse doing anything with your last $50 that involves gambling to hopefully, you know, make it rich. But it's a better idea than merging three human beings into one. I'll give you that. Mm, I, I still love that. I, I think that was my favorite idea, personally. <laughs> <laughs> he is Josh Briscoe. You can give him a follow on Twitter, at JB Briscoe. Josh, thank you so much for the time, as always, man. 
Thank you guys for having me. I am uh, going to get back into digital line for this Arby's vodka now. All right, there we go. Uh, we know what Josh will be drinking if uh, something goes wrong with the Chiefs offense moving forward. That is Josh Briscoe, again, of Almost Entirely Sports, Arrowhead Report on SI Now and Times Ours on The Athletic. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. One hour down, two to go. Four o'clock hour, this is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. Still awaiting to hear from uh, Odell Beckham Jr. news, right? Is he going to sign with the Chiefs? Sounds like Chiefs, Patriots, Packers, like those are the big teams in on it. And uh, I guess if if we see something, we'll bring it to you here with what goes on there. It feels like this happens every year uh, that we've gotten the past couple years with the Chiefs. Like once you're a contender and you have like that guy at quarterback, which you do in Patrick Mahomes, and you've established yourself as one of the top, you know, NFL franchises or NFL teams uh, over a recent run of, of success. There's always like a couple guys every year who get dropped mid season because it just doesn't work out or a team's doing them a favor and, and letting them go sign with a team who is a contender or, you know, uh, just a guy who's underperformed, but he maybe has something left in the tank. And the chiefs have, have kind of, done a pretty good job in, in years past wrapping some of those guys up. You think of uh, Le'Veon Bell, who got dropped by the Jets and it didn't end up mattering for the Chiefs or impacting anything and wasn't very good for the Chiefs, um, but they went out and got him. They got Terrell Suggs. They, I don't remember, LaShawn McCoy, I think, was before the season, but kind of similar idea there, and Odell Beckham Jr. would kind of be the same idea if the Chiefs were able to to scoop him up. They did so with Josh Gordon as well. So, like, they've been a team who has kind of lived on on this area of roster acquisition, and um, sounds like they're in it with Odo Beckham Jr., which, you know, some people, I'm sure, would say, I don't want him. He's a locker room cancer. Others would bring up that T.O. Andy Reid comparison where they went to the Super Bowl and seemed to manage just fine. I think from just an on-the-field football perspective, even though Odell is a shell of what he once former was, I don't know, six, seven years ago, is he better than McCole Hardman? And immediately your answer should have been yes. It's not close. So from that standpoint, I say give it a try, but at this point it's not just totally up to the Chiefs, right? Like I'm sure for him it's also what he thinks is going to be the best fit, what he thinks he's going to get the most catches, maybe what's going to get him the most money. If it's a money thing, probably doesn't work out well for um, the Chiefs, uh, the Saints, I think, offered him a minimum deal, and they're another team who's in it on him, and I don't know that that's going to be the case, but I, I guess we'll just see what happens uh, from that standpoint. Chiefs did come up with a victory on Sunday against the Packers. We didn't even get a chance to talk about this on Monday or Tuesday on our show. Monday, we were so loaded up with KU basketball, KU football content. Yesterday, we had the short show, all pretty much KU basketball yesterday. And in that game on Sunday against the Packers, I mean, on one hand, the defense was excellent. The other hand, the offense was putrid. And if we just started with the defense, they won the Chiefs that game, and they have played really well the last two weeks for this team. I wonder how repeatable that is um, moving forward. Now, as far as what you saw in the game, Melvin Ingram coming over via trade looked really good on the defensive line for you. Frank Clark continued to impress 
for back-to-back weeks now, and you hope that is a strong run of play um, that continues on for Frank Clark, and maybe it's something of coming healthy. Maybe it's just finally getting, you know, I don't know, a, a fire under your butt to kind of get it going. Uh, but that was nice to see, and you move Chris Jones to the inside. Like, those are all tangible differences that are, are reasons to make you think the defense is better, and it's not just a, a lucky run of play, that there actually are changes into what would make them play better. And I think it's very easy to acknowledge, and everybody would, that the game is a much different story if Aaron Rodgers plays. If Aaron Rodgers plays, Packers probably win that game. I feel, I would almost feel certain with the way the offense struggled in that game, Aaron Rodgers and the Packers win that game. But the defense still played better, and, and Jordan Love did not look good at all. But much better to do that, what they did on Sunday, and much better to do what they did the previous Monday and holding Daniel Jones down than losing to them like the Raiders did, right? The Raiders just lost to the Giants or allowing an explosive debut to Jordan Love. And surely the improved defensive line play. And then also you have other tangible things that you can point to with Nick Bolton and Willie Gay finally both out-snapping Ben Neiman um, and usurping Ben Neiman. I, I think that makes you feel a lot better about where this defense is going and makes you feel better about where they can be moving forward. There still is the idea of, you know, what happens when you do face an elite quarterback or an elite offense? What is that going to look like? But if we go from all of a sudden, you know, giving up 31 points automatically to a good offense to you're giving up 24, like that could be the difference in you winning or losing a game making a stop a couple times to field goals instead of touchdowns, but getting one turnover. Like, that can be the difference, getting one extra sack, and it seems like the Chiefs defense has kind of made that step back to what they have been the past couple years, which isn't a perfect defense. It's not even a top-10 defense. But can they just be league average? And if they can be league average and you can have one of the, if not the best offenses in the NFL, you should be okay. But that's where the other part of this comes in. The offense has not been close to being one of the best offenses in the NFL the last four or five games, right? I uh, just kind of continue to be amazed that they won't just check their way down the field and run their way down the field. You have the first drive of the game against the Packers where – you run the ball five times, you work your way down the field, you take the shortcuts, and you score a touchdown. And that was your most uh, successful offensive drive of the game. And so the lack of running the ball and sticking with it, I, I think it kind of has to be on Andy Reid at that point. That was a criticism of him in Philadelphia. And, and it's almost like they, they run it three times in a row, and you run it three times for 20 yards, and you get a couple first downs, and then all of a sudden you have this idea that because we ran it three times well, those three plays, like that's going to be enough for the defense to just say, okay, they did it, guys. They ran the ball three times for 20 yards. Time for us to adjust. I know we spend all week talking about playing two deep safeties, playing man-to-man on the outside and saying, if they want to beat us with short passes and runs, we'll let them. But those three runs, that's going to change our game plan. That's going to make us toss everything in the game plan out the window. You can't just commit to it for one drive. You can't just commit to it for two plays to start out a drive and pick up a first down. You need to commit to this thing for an entire game. And I see what they did last year against the Buffalo Bills in the game, not in the AFC Championship, the game that was in Buffalo on Thursday night. 
I want to say they ran for 250 yards in that game. That was the most committed they have been to running the football. And I get it. When you have a strong passing game and when it's working right and when you're hitting downfield plays and being explosive, running the ball is just not going to be as efficient of moving the ball as it is passing the ball. I get that. And when it is right, you're 100% right. But right now the passing game is not right. And a big reason why is you need to establish that other stuff. It can't just be a short-term thing. You have to commit to this for a full game. You have to commit to this for multiple games on end. And it goes with the passing game, too. I mean, what do we do with what's gone on with the passing game? Was the final play where Patrick Mahomes makes an incredible play, rolls to his right, hits Tyreek Hill on the run, gets all pumped up. Is that a play that's going to get him out of the funk and has enough momentum to kind of shift things back the Chiefs' way to where they want to go? Or is is it just going to be the same old, same old, and that was kind of just a a one-off for that game. I mean, going back in line with the the running the ball thing, like I, I don't know where the blame goes, right? Does it go on Andy Reid? Does it go on Eric Bieniemy for not calling enough short passes and runs? Does it go on Patrick Mahomes? Because there's, you know, a part that uh, of me that wants to say, like, is Patrick Mahomes, you know the Leroy Jenkins video? If you haven't, like, I don't know where you've been. Just go search it on YouTube. And the guy just yells Leroy Jenkins and jumps into the action. Like, that feels like Patrick Mahomes sometimes right now, where it's just like, you know, I can have this short check down. I can have this 10, 15-yard pass. I'm just going to go for the whole enchilada. And you just go for the big play every time. And nothing embodied that more than that deep ball to McCole Hardman in the first half when Travis Kelsey was wide open. Now, maybe you could argue McCole Hardman kind of quit on the pass play, and maybe if it was you know, a better receiver than a play is made by the Chiefs on that deep ball. But it just feels like you're missing out on that opportunity and not being patient enough. You're being too stubborn with what you're trying to do as an offense overall. They need to have a succession of games where they just say, you know what, we're going to have 150 yards rushing this game and we're going to only do short passes. Until they finally adjust defensively. A couple plays ain't going to get it done. We got to do it for games on end where we put it enough on tape where teams say, okay, we've got to adjust to their adjustment. Because right now the Chiefs have not adjusted. I will say, though, if you are looking for progress in the offense, how much do we weigh the offense struggling to what they did against the Packers, which was obviously a pretty big struggle fest against not having any turnovers? Because that was a big improvement. They had 19 turnovers coming into that game through the first eight games. So that would be about two and a half a game. Zero in that game. And I don't think it's a coincidence that you find a way to win that game defensively when you don't have any turnovers. You're not putting the defenses in as many bad situations. And in a game where your defense played well against a quarterback who played poorly, and they have special teams gaffes, that can sometimes be enough to win you games in the NFL. So that was, I will say, like a, a very big improvement for this team. But it almost felt like it came at the loss of the offense performing well. And so you have to have this kind of like balancing act, and it just makes it very difficult. But I will say, like, what would you rather have? Would you rather have the offense be explosive but keep having turnover issues? 
or have the offense be a game management offense with no turnovers. And to be clear, they weren't even a game management offense against the Packers. They were worse than that. But like the comparison that I want to talk about is like like Alex Smith. Would you rather have the Alex Smith offense with you know, no turnovers where you're still efficient enough, you're still like a top 10 offense, but you're clearly not the best offense with no turnovers or would you rather have all sorts of turnovers but be explosive? And I don't know the answer to that. I think you'd almost rather have the Alex Smith type of offense in that situation because turnovers are so detrimental to you winning games, to you giving up points. But we've seen with this Chiefs offense in the past, they've had the ability to do both with Patrick Mahomes. They've had the ability to be explosive offensively and not turn the football over. And that is what has made them one of the best offenses in the NFL. And we're not really seeing either of those right now, but we did see the lack of turnovers on Sunday. So I guess... At the very least, that is progress, and that is moving forward, even though I remain waiting to see a patient game from the Chiefs the whole way through. We saw it the first drive against the Packers. I thought that might be good progress, but then you didn't see it the rest of the game. So overall, I think we're kind of just in the same position as looking at things for the Chiefs as after the Giants game. Wasn't pretty. Probably a bit of luck that went your way. When you think about the Packers' gaffes on special teams, missing field goals, the it's not a muffed punt because it just hit the guy's leg as he was falling down, but I guess a fumbled punt. And so all that doesn't really make you feel any better about where the Chiefs are overall, and it doesn't necessarily make you feel like all of a sudden the Chiefs are now a true playoff you know, team that's, that's going to be a real contender. And in some ways, it honestly makes you feel worse because you feel like, you took a step forward and you took a step back. You took a step forward with the defense. You took a step back with the offense. But I guess maybe this is just like eating your vegetables with dinner. Like, I, I don't know if it, if you eating your vegetables for dinner will get you to a point where you're allowed to eat your dessert, which would be beating the Raiders and beating the Cowboys and other good teams. But I guess eating your vegetables is better for your long-term sustainability and from that standpoint, the Chiefs beating the Packers and the Giants, even though neither was really encouraging, especially on the offensive end, is at least sustainable to your long-term chances of making the playoffs because you absolutely had to win both those games. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Let's uh, switch gears, here from Lance Leipold, talk a little KU football on the other side. We've also got to get to your college football whip around coming up later this hour. This is RCST on FM 1017. 1320 KLWN, KLWN.com, depend on it. Welcome back into Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. College football playoff rankings came out last night. Let's discuss those and more in our college football whip around. Let's start with those playoff rankings. Really no issues at the top. I mean, we can go back with the issues from the week before with, you know, if you wanted Cincinnati ahead of whoever. Um, but that didn't change from last week to this week, so I wouldn't have any new gripes or anything. Uh, the biggest difference to me, or, or I guess the biggest gripe I would have, Michigan State being ahead of Michigan in the rankings. Or I'm sorry, I did that wrong. Michigan ahead of Michigan State in the rankings. The two played, not at the beginning of the season either, two weeks ago, and Michigan State 
beat Michigan. And so I get it. There's a part of the game, too. Michigan was up 30-14 to 14 in that game. For a large chunk of the game, they were the better team. But since when have we started awarding teams, quote-unquote, wins for being the better team for a majority of the game but not coming out with the win? Did the Browns get the win against the Chiefs in week one because they were the better team for a majority of the game? Or do we give the win to the team who won the game at the end of the game? And that has to matter at some point. And so I get it. Like, head-to-head is not the be-all, end-all, right? There's a list of a bunch of different things that matter. And I agree with that. You have head-to-head as being one of those components. Record. um, Record against common opponents. Statistics like your offense and defensive efficiency. You know, did you win a conference or are you winning your division or conference? And things like that. You know, best wins, right? Who has the better first win, the better second win, so forth down the line. Well, if you compare the two of them, Michigan might end up better in in some of the statistics, offense and defense and so forth. Michigan State's going to come up with a better resume. Like Michigan State has the better top win. Beating Michigan is better than Michigan's best win, which is beating Wisconsin. Beating um, Miami, who's five and four and is hot right now, is a better win than Michigan's second best win. And you go down the line. So from that standpoint, it's it's pretty close to a tie. And the head-to-head should be the tiebreaker there, right? Like, Texas A&M shouldn't be ahead of Alabama because they beat them because it's not a tiebreaker. Alabama is better than them in so many different areas that the head-to-head doesn't become a factor into a tiebreaker. But they are literally right next to each other in the rankings. The head-to-head should matter at that point. And if you're going to say... Well, but Michigan was the better team. Again, I've already explained that that is such a stupid way of thinking because this isn't... uh, Like, it is a 12-game season. It is a 12-game season. The results have to matter here. And so we, we can argue back and forth about what's predictive versus what happened, but we don't award things for what's predictive. I don't get a raise at work because my boss tells me, hey, I know you're not showing up to work on time, but I really like the progress that you've been showing up to work a little closer to being on time. And the way this is trending, like predictively, I think within a year or two, you could be our best employee. No, I get a raise at work because I did well at work. So like, I I just get so mad about this. Like, I understand the predictive nature of rankings and I actually can get on board with it in other sports like college basketball. It's a long season. One loss doesn't diminish you from making the NCAA tournament or from being a great team. But in college football, where you have such a small sample size of being able to determine who makes it, the results have to matter because it does go into a smaller sample. And the other thing here, first of all, it's just sloppiness from the college football playoff committee. And it is just so inconsistent. Oregon is ranked third ahead of Ohio State, who's fourth. Head-to-head matter there. It was the tiebreaker of two resumes that are pretty similar. Yet, Michigan is ahead of Michigan State with a similar thing. And you can go down the rankings and, and find it as well. Baylor just lost to an unranked TCU team. Okay? Does this not sound similar to what happened to Michigan State? Michigan State lost to an unranked, now-ranked Purdue team. And because of that quote-unquote bad loss, they fall in the rankings behind Michigan. Well, Baylor lost to a quote-unquote unranked bad TCU team, and TCU is way worse than Purdue is. Baylor 
only fell two spots in the poll, and they stayed in front of BYU. Both have the same record. Baylor beat BYU head-to-head. Why did that happen for Baylor, but it did not happen for Michigan State? Show some consistency. If you're going to put Michigan ahead of Michigan State, then you should put BYU ahead of Baylor because you can make the same argument and say that, well, BYU has a better resume overall. BYU does have a better resume than Baylor overall. And you could say that, well, BYU has looked like the better team since then. It's just a lack of consistency, and it's very, very frustrating overall. By the way, Wake Forest, North Carolina, that game was a non-conference game. Yes, both teams were in the ACC, but it was a non-conference game. That's like me saying calories don't count on Thanksgiving because it's a holiday. That's so incredibly stupid. I I saw something, too, that um, North Carolina played Wake Forest and Notre Dame last year, and they played them this year. Last year, both games were conference games. This year, they were not, which is absolutely incredible uh, for that to happen. Uh, There's some really good divisional races, speaking of the ACC. Both divisions in the ACC remain completely kind of contested down the stretch. Wake Forest takes on NC State this weekend. If Wake Forest wins that game, um, I forget if they play an eight or nine game schedule in the ACC, but they would have a stranglehold, if not lock things up at that point, I guess. They could still get three-way tied. Uh, Clemson could still play into it. But um, if NC State wins the game, they have not a stranglehold because they could lose and then Wake Forest could win out and they'd be donezo there. But that is still up for grabs, really, between Wake Forest, NC State, and Clemson. The ACC Coastal is a mess. Pittsburgh, Virginia, Miami all have two losses or less. If North Carolina wins out with three losses, who knows? Maybe they could get into some weird tiebreaker. ACC, an absolute mess. Big 12 that race coming down to the wire. If Oklahoma wins out, they obviously get the one seed. But if Oklahoma State wins out and beat Oklahoma, they get in. Now, what happens if, for instance, if, if Oklahoma were to lose to Iowa State next week? They play at Baylor this week, and there's a real chance they could lose that game as well. And Baylor could factor in, too, because they're 4-2. and two, And if they beat Oklahoma, they could find their way in the Big 12 title game. But Iowa State is kind of sleep sleepily, like, quietly sneaking up there. They're 4-2 and two in conference play. They're a game behind Oklahoma State for being in the Big 12 title game. If Iowa State were to upend Oklahoma, then all Iowa State would need to do, I I shouldn't say all because that's obviously a tough task, is they got to win their other two games. They have to win out. So if Iowa State wins out, they would be 7-2, and and they would have head-to-head wins over both Oklahoma and Oklahoma State. And then at that point, they would have given Oklahoma a loss. Oklahoma would have to play Oklahoma State still, so one of them would be guaranteed a second loss, and then Iowa State would have the head-to-head on them. So don't count out Iowa State at this point for making it still to the Big 12 title game. Big 10 um, in the East, it's pretty much three-team race between Ohio State, Michigan State, and Michigan. I mentioned a couple weeks ago, Penn State is the potential wrecking ball in the Big 10 title race and is the wrecking ball in the potential uh college football playoff race because Penn State played Ohio State, Michigan State, Michigan was out of the playoff race at that point. Well, they they lost to Ohio State. They kept it close. But now this week they play Michigan. And if Penn State beats Michigan, it's almost like a game of tag. Um, But it's not like tag. It's like, I don't know, is zombie tag a thing? Like you tag somebody and now you're both it. Like you're both zombies, I guess, hypothetically. Uh, But that's what happens. If, If Penn State beats Michigan, They've basically infected them, and they are both zombies walking around as as no longer college football playoff contenders. Both would have two and three losses, respectively. 
And then both of them can affect things by playing Ohio State and Michigan State case and in Penn State playing Michigan State in their case. So uh, that's a lot to watch out for, but still that division is open up in the air. The West, this is my favorite division race. Wisconsin, Minnesota, Purdue, and Iowa are all 4-2 and two in the Big Ten West right now. So I don't know what the tiebreaker would be if they all finished like 5-3, and three, but it looks like right now Wisconsin would have the edge. They're playing a lot better than they were early in the season. Wisconsin is actually one of the top teams in the entire country if you go by uh, ESPN SP+. And they had the blowout loss early in the season um, to Notre Dame. But you look at their other losses. Like, they lost close to Penn State a game. that They just had turnovers in the red zone. You could have argued that they probably could have won that game. And then you uh, have the the close, well, I guess the Michigan loss wasn't that close. Michigan kind of pulled away. Um, but Wisconsin has kind of figured it out. And... I would not necessarily indicate that that's just like an automatic win for whoever wins the East just because Wisconsin has three losses. Like, they're playing a lot better than they were early in the season, but who knows? It could still be Minnesota, Purdue, or Iowa. Ohio State catches Purdue on a break, though, uh, because they're ranked now. They don't have the uh, unranked magic going with them anymore. Obviously, there's small conferences that like the MAC and the Conference USA and Mountain West that have interesting races as well, but um, the other big one, I, big ones, I guess, the Pac-12 and the SEC, and the Pac-12, the North pretty much comes down to this week. Oregon plays Washington State. Washington State wins. Washington State would be in first of the North. I'm expecting Oregon is going to take care of business there. And if they do that, then I believe they would clinch the North. I don't know what the tiebreakers would be because they'd still play Oregon State and if there could be some convoluted tie there. Um, but in the South, Utah looks in command at the moment. They're game up on Arizona State, two games up on UCLA. Utah still has to play Oregon. So if Oregon wins that game, all of a sudden, things are back in play um, for the Pac-12 South. And I think that could get very interesting, too, with the fact that Oregon could have to beat Utah twice to make the college football playoff. One of them on the road against Utah. That feels like Oregon is not going to make it out undefeated. The Pac-12 always shoots itself in the foot. In the, in the SEC, the only thing of interest in the West, like A&M is not out of this thing just yet, which brings us to our next segment, who is still even alive for the college football playoff. Reminder on the rules, you can't have two losses unless you're the SEC champ. Remember that second part. Uh, if you're a group of five team, most likely you can't make it. The only way you can, be good the season before, play marquee non-con games, and go undefeated, and then hope for craziness around you. And then if you do lose once, the rule for making it into the college football playoff um, has to come against a good team. If it doesn't come against a good team, it can't come against an awful team. And if it comes against a mediocre team then you can't get blown out and if you do get blown out you have to get revenge um we're down to 12 teams that are even available to make the playoff at this point acc wake forest is your only team still left and again this is not a will they make the playoff or like me predicting will they will because if wake forest first of all they probably won't win out second of all even if they do win out they still are going to need help but it just it puts them in the conversation, is my point. Um, so Wake Forest, because of the fact that you have so much ground to make up, they're probably not making it, but they still play NC State at Clemson at Boston College. That could really strengthen the resume. They'd be a one-loss Power 5 champ. They'd get the ACC championship at that point. Probably not enough, but, you know, they'd be a one-loss Power 5 champion. I still kind of think it'd be interesting with them in Cincinnati. Most one-loss, I, I would probably say 
any of the one-loss Power 5 teams are going to end up ahead of an undefeated Cincinnati. Wake Forest might be the one exception there, but it at least would become a very interesting conversation. But again, they're probably going to lose one of those games. NC State at Clemson at Boston College, you pick in Wake Forest, and all three of those, didn't think so. Uh, Big 12, Oklahoma and Oklahoma State are the only teams available to at least make it to the college football playoff. It is Baylor saying goodbye after losing to TCU. Oklahoma, though, tough stretch. Baylor, Iowa State, Oklahoma State, and then probably one of those three same teams again. They have to beat all four to probably make the playoff. Now, in theory, if you were to just say before the season, a 12-1 Oklahoma probably gets into the playoff again before the season. But given how much they struggled in some of those other games, you just wonder if that is the case. Now, if they do beat Baylor this week, I think we're going to see a big jump from Oklahoma. Um... The big issue for Oklahoma, they don't have any marquee wins. They don't have any current top 25 wins. Their best wins right now are Kansas State, who's 6-3, and and Texas on a neutral field, who is 4-5. So if they beat Baylor, having that one marquee win, they could legitimately jump all the way to number 5, like ahead of Cincinnati, and I think that might happen. I just don't know what happens if they do lose one game because they have been kind of behind the eight ball in some of these other results. Um, But certainly, Oklahoma and Oklahoma State are both alive for that. Big 10, Ohio State. Even Michigan State after the loss, they're still alive, right? If they beat Ohio State, they're going to be back in a situation where people are saying, yep, that's a playoff team. And then Michigan, uh, those are the ones in the Big Ten. Pac-12 has Oregon, who again uh, could have that trickiness of of having to play Utah a couple times. Washington State, not a pushover this week, but they should win. Oregon State, rivalry game, you never know. You still just don't really trust the Pac-12. And then the SEC, Um, Georgia, Alabama, obviously. Ole Miss by a thread. They can still technically, I believe, win the conference somehow. Actually, I don't know if that's true. Anyway, uh, Texas A&M is definitely still alive for the college football playoff. I know that sounds crazy with two losses, but it's true. You have the win over Alabama, and that allows you, beyond just having a, a resume booster, they're in at number 11. Texas A&M still plays Ole Miss. So that'd be another chance for a top 15 win. But if Alabama were to get upset, and I mean, they go to Auburn the final game of the season, which is a game Alabama will be favored in, but we've seen them be upset by Auburn before. It's a rival, and Auburn is still a good football team. If they lose that game, and AM wins out, AM would have the tiebreaker over Alabama. AM would go to the SEC championship game. And if AM at 10 and 2, at that point, they'd be ranked in the top, I don't know, seven or eight, beats Georgia in the SEC title. They are getting in. Two losses or not, they are getting in. So they're still alive. And then uh, I guess Cincinnati, still alive. Notre Dame, still technically alive. I was thinking about this. Again, kind of similar conversation about Oklahoma, how you said, if, if you would have said before the year, Notre Dame is going to go 11-1, and one, and you looked at what their schedule was going to be before the year, all these Power 5 opponents, a lot of them haven't ended up being that good. But before the season, you would have said, if they go 11-1, they're in, easy. They might go 11-1 and one and not even sniff the playoff, but at least would give them a possibility. The problem for them, they would need to go 11-1 and one and hope Cincinnati gets upset a couple times or hope that Cincinnati was good enough to get the three seed where Notre Dame could get the four seed. So they're probably screwed, but again, technically still in it just by these basic rules. This is Rock Truck Sports Talk. That is your college football whip around. I'm Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it.